You be seated. Why don't you turn in your Bibles uh, to Matthew 16 this morning? Matthew chapter 16. And uh, personally, and then even for the church, I've done uh, the last few weeks, I've been on Facebook Marketplace a little bit more often than I normally am. I wonder how many of you in here have ever bought or sold something on Facebook Marketplace? Any, any Facebook Marketplacers? All right, Joy, I know you're on there. Well, who else has been on Facebook Marketplace? Keep your hands up, keep your hands up. All right, decent amount. I'm convinced that Facebook Marketplace almost uh, is the only place that the art of bargaining is alive and well. I mean, in no other place can you go and totally disregard the listed price and just lowball somebody to death. I mean, imagine if you went to Walmart and, you know, a gallon of milk's $3.50 or $3.99 and you do what most people do on Facebook Marketplace. You go up to the teenage cashier at Walmart. Oh, wait, they don't really have any of those anymore. You go to the, um, you know, automated register at Walmart and you say, I will not pay $3.99 for this gallon of milk. I will only pay $1. Will you take $1? You and I both know what kind of response <laughs> the person would have, right? But on Facebook Marketplace, if you're selling, maybe, this might be a hypothetical example. It might not be. If you're selling an old car that's listed for 3000 that you've done the research and you know it's worth right around $3,000 and you put a $3,000 price tag on the car, only on Facebook Marketplace will you get people who've never seen your car with their two eyeballs saying, I'll give you 2000 No, you're not going to get my car for $2,000. We bargain. We uh, are always looking for a deal. Now, I'll, I'll be honest, as the person who's selling the item, bargaining annoys me. That's why I'm not often on Facebook Marketplace. But I'll tell you what, I do love a good bargain. I love getting a good deal on something. Because it's nice to not have to have your pocketbook hurt so much when you buy something new. Believe it or not, our passage this morning in Matthew 16, includes some bargaining. We've been in Matthew the last few weeks, and if you remember, this guy, Peter, has made a monumental confession of who he believes Jesus to be. In fact, I think our section here, Matthew 16, serves as the very center of Matthew's gospel. It leads up to this point, and it works from this point to the very end. And, and the same guy who says that Jesus is the king and the son of God, in the passage we're about to read, is going to find himself bargaining with Jesus for a less expensive version of Christianity. Now, there's nothing wrong with you bar bargaining or bartering on Facebook Marketplace. But what we're going to find in our passage this morning is there is no bargains with God. There is no room for bartering when it comes to Christianity. The cost of following Jesus is non-negotiable. 
His price is set. You either pay the cost or you put it back on the shelf. And our passage this morning is going to answer two questions for us. And I think these two questions will help get your mind around where we're going this morning. I think Matthew's going to answer this question for us. What does it look like to follow Jesus? How can I look at my life and identify whether or not I'm actually a follower of Jesus. Because what Jesus is going to say here is that there's a lot of people who want to follow Jesus, who like Jesus, but by his definition, they are not following Jesus. It's possible to think you are willing to follow Jesus, but to be wrong. And what Jesus is going to teach us in this passage should cause all of us to take a hard look at our lives and ask ourselves, are we even following Jesus at all? Or maybe for some of us, are we following him as we should? And then the passage will end this morning answering this question. Why follow Jesus when the cost seems so high? If following Jesus is so costly, is it even worth it? After all, if I'm being honest with you, Christianity makes a lot of demands that seem very costly and to our culture, very silly. Our passage this morning, I want to break it down in three sections. The cross, the cost, and the crown. The cross, the cost, and the crown. Let's look at Matthew 16 and read verses 21 through 28 together. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest or valuest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. That Jesus said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he shall re reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
I told you our passage breaks down in three parts. The cross, the cost, and the crown. And I, I think you noticed in verses 21 through 23 that we see how Jesus explains to us the cross and its necessity. So here he's asking his disciples who he is, and they respond correctly in Matthew 16, verse number 16, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. And because his disciples are starting to get the picture a little bit more clearly, they don't think Jesus is a prophet, they don't think he's some resurrected guy, they recognize Jesus is the Son of God and the promised Savior, Jesus now says, you congratulations, you've now graduated to Christianity 201. And he begins to explain to them part of his plan that would have been completely unexpected to the disciples. Verse 21 lays it out that the plan that the father had for Jesus was for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and for all of the elite people of Jerusalem to take him captive, to beat him, and to kill him. Now, you can imagine how unexpected that is because what did Peter say Jesus was? He says in verse 16 that he is the son of the living God. And now Jesus is saying that he is going to die. Talk about a dissonance there. And I think it works so much like this in our lives, doesn't it? That right as you and I are starting to think we've got God figured out, he throws a curveball at us and shows us something about God that maybe we didn't know before. And clearly, Peter is caught off guard by this. Because in verse 22, Peter responds in a way that would have been totally unexpected, especially from the guy who declares this monumental confession of who Jesus is. He claimed that Jesus is his king, and he claimed that Jesus is God incarnate, and yet Peter somehow in this moment thinks that he has the right to grab Jesus, pull him off to the side, and in verse number 22, it says he began to rebuke him. Now, you don't have to be an English scholar to recognize that maybe the way we would say this is he chewed him out. And in fact, the, the words of Peter that are recorded for us, you know, you may not recognize how stern these words are on the face, but literally what, you, what Peter is saying in verse 22 is he's saying, God be merciful to you. He's appalled. How could Jesus, who's the son of the living God, say he's going to die? How could the man that Peter believed would sit on David's throne forever die? Well, Jesus did mention in verse 21, he would rise from the dead, but like maybe your husband, he didn't miss, he missed that part. He didn't quite hear the full thing. And here Peter is saying, I don't care if you're gonna rise from the dead. This whole death thing is not right. Jesus, you've got it all wrong. He rebukes him. Well, Jesus responds in kind. And in verse 23, he rebukes Peter. And, and what's interesting is prior in our section, what did, what did Peter say? He declares this monumental confession and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And then he says, upon this rock, and he's talking about Peter, I will build my church. And he's talking to Peter and blessing Peter and talking about God's great plans to use Peter in the early church. 
And now Jesus has some other words for Peter. He calls him Satan. Well, that seems strange to us, having read the previous verses. And to be honest, this is kind of a a difficult passage of Scripture. Why did Jesus call Peter Satan? Some people might say that maybe Peter was possessed by Satan in saying these words. I don't necessarily believe that. Um, Some would say that they think Satan is directly behind the words of Peter. And I don't actually think that's true either. What I think Jesus is showing us is that when Peter is trying to convince Jesus to avoid God's plan of suffering, Peter is unintentionally and unknowingly speaking in the same way Satan did in Matthew chapter number four. You remember Satan's temptation on the mountain of Jesus. What is the common thread in all three temptations on the mountain? Well, what Satan is trying to do in Matthew chapter number four is he's trying to offer Jesus the glory of the kingdom without Jesus having to experience suffering. That's what's behind the temptation to turn stones into bread. He's saying, Jesus, you don't need to fast 40 days. Just turn these stones into bread. And that's what's behind the pinnacle temptation. He says, look, Jesus, you don't have to go to a cross to receive the kingdoms that the Father has promised to you. Just bow down right here and worship me. There's an easier way. Does that not sound a lot like Peter? Peter's saying, Jesus, you don't need to suffer. You need to be a king and establish your kingdom. And so Jesus says, no, Peter, you are speaking like Satan is speaking. And he says, Peter, here's what you don't recognize. What you don't recognize is my plan to die is necessary. And the reason you can't see that, he says at the end of verse 23, is because Peter's mindset is not a godly mindset. Peter's thinking like a mere human. He says, Peter, if you understood better, you would recognize that the only way that I can atone for the sins of humanity is by dying as an innocent sacrifice. Peter, this may not make sense in the human mind, but it's God's thinking and it's God's wisdom and it's God's plan that I need to sacrifice myself so that humanity will not be condemned by their sins. Jesus says in verse 23, essentially this, men, humans, they want glory and power and a crown, but God in his plan always gives glory after suffering. Peter, in his mind, is imagining a Christ who would conquer, who would be successful, who would set up a kingdom, because that's what Peter wanted. Peter wanted to share in that glory. Later on, Peter wanted to sit at the right hand of the Father. But what Jesus is saying is that God's plans sometimes are totally different than you and I would expect. Friend, if you find yourself in a very unexpected situation in life, recognize this morning that that should not surprise you when you look at the scope of Scripture and realize that God is always full of surprises. God is always using very negative things on the face to work out very positive things in the end. And ultimately... That suffering Jesus had to endure was necessary. That's why in verse 21, Jesus said that he must go to Jerusalem and die. 
Now, what we're going to see is that Jesus is not just talking about God's plan for him. I imagine all of us here recognize that Jesus had to die for our sins, don't we? We recognize that it would not be possible for you to be forgiven of your sins if it was not for the sacrifice of Christ. I don't imagine there's too much debate about that in here. But I think where most of us would have issue with God's plan and we would argue with God's plan is when we recognize that the cross of Jesus Christ gives us an example of not just what God's plan was for Jesus, but what God's plan is for us. See, my friends, I believe with all my heart, God's salvation is free grace. Are we in agreement on that? It is free. It ain't like the things you're gonna be buying for Christmas season. It is free grace. But my friends, be careful Because though God's grace is free, it is not cheap. It is free to receive, but it costs you much to receive it. You don't have to earn your salvation. You simply must turn from your own self-rule and self-governance and self-worship, and you must turn to Christ and believe in his power and receive him as your Lord. But that decision, though it doesn't cost you anything to receive Christ, following Christ, Jesus says, costs you everything. Here's how I would summarize what Jesus is trying to teach us. He's saying this. That Christ's cross models our cost. The cross of Jesus is a model for what it costs you to follow him. That's why Jesus begins to teach his disciples in verses 24 that there is a cost associated with following him. Look at, listen to his words. Each phrase is rich with application. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me. Now that's typical language in the gospels for being a follower of Jesus. The way you could maybe rephrase this in your own mind is Jesus is saying, this is who a follower of Jesus is. This is who they must be. He says, if any man will come after me, let him, this is a command, deny himself. Let him deny himself. You know what Jesus is saying there? I just want to rephrase a couple ways so it really sinks in. He's saying the essence of following me is to forget about yourself. Someone else paraphrased it this way, to renounce yourself. Another person said it like this. He's saying that it is to disregard your desires. Jesus is saying if that you're going to recognize him as your Lord, then what you want and what you feel takes a back seat. You are to deny yourself and say, first of all, not what I want, but God, what do you want? It does that not sound like Jesus's prayer in the garden before he suffered. What'd he say? Not my will, but thy will be done. If you're going to follow Jesus, Jesus says it means you and your desires and your wants take a back seat to Jesus. But then the next phrase is even more controversial. He says, if you're going to follow me, verse number 23, or sorry, verse number 24, you need to take up your cross. 
Now, I fear that what this means has been lost on modern Christians because we have, you know, obviously and rightly so uh, romanticized the cross. We have it decorating our walls and I think on the front of our pulpit. And as a Christian, the cross is a sign of beauty. Friend, in the days of Jesus, the cross was about as beautiful as the electric chair. To, To die on a cross was to die the death of the most despised lower class criminals. They respected higher class people too much to put them on a cross. Jesus is saying, and pardon me if I paraphrase this, pick up your instrument of torturous death and follow me. Pick up something that is preceded by crowds of people mocking you and making fun of you as you walk the dreaded steps to your own death. That's what a cross is. When Jesus says, you need to take up your cross and follow me, he's not being metaphorical. He's saying to his disciples, especially in this context, because he's saying how he's going to die. He's saying, if you want to follow me, just go ahead and get your cross ready because you too will need to die. You will need to die the most shameful and painful death, the very same death that I'm going to pay for your sins. He's saying that if you're going to follow me, you need to be willing to march on your way to your own execution to shamefully carry the heavy beam of your instrument of torture through the midst of an angry mob. That's what it means to follow me. So he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He states it positively. Not only do you have to be willing to die, to disregard yourself, but following me requires that I am your Lord. I call the shots in your life. I think we have to ask ourselves this question. If Jesus is calling us to give up our very lives to follow him, what else could Jesus be calling you to give up for his sake? If Jesus is saying, to follow me, you have to give up everything, even your own life, We all recognize that may not be the case in 21st century America, but let's not forget that that is the case for millions of professed Christians every year. We we think that persecution is just some far off thing in a a far off time before us. No, friend, there are millions of people who die to be Christians every year in other places in this world. But we must ask ourselves, if Jesus asked me to go all the way to the extreme for death, then what else does following him include? Think of how countercultural this advice is. It runs against the grain of everything you and I have been told all of our lives. What is, what is the culture? What has our parents, what have our teachers told us? Don't do something you want, don't want to do. Don't let anyone change who you are. Follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. Friend, If Jesus listened to any of that advice, he would have never died on a cross. He would have never died on a cross. 
And we need to come to grips this morning like Peter that if Jesus needed to die, we too must die as well. If Jesus needed to die on a cross physically, then what makes us think that following Jesus will not be costly? And here's what I'm gonna say this morning to help you and I see where this applies to us. I think I'm on pretty good ground to say this, that in every life in this room, there is something you are holding on to that Jesus called you to give up. This call rings true for every Christian in this room. That in all of our lives, whether it's big or small, we are all holding on to something that Jesus has called us to give up if we are truly to follow him as Lord. The sad reality is there are many people say, I would die for Jesus. But I think Ezra Benson said it well, some men are willing to die for their faith, but not, will not fully live for it. I wonder this morning if what you're holding on to instead of giving it up for Jesus is you are unwilling to pay the cost of denying your own sinful desires. Christ's cross, the Bible tells us, is a vivid reminder that the Christian must die to their own personal attachment to sin. Even the ones you really, really like, Romans 6.6 6 tells us. We must die to those sins as a follower of Jesus. And my hope today is that the Holy Spirit is in your mind right now and he has identified the sin you're hanging on to because you just don't want to give it up and you will recognize this morning that as a follower of Jesus, you must die to that sin. For some of us, like Peter, we struggle paying the cost of suffering. I, I believe this. Very few people mind following Jesus when we can do so and still maintain our comfortable, easy lives. But a disciple that only follows Jesus when it's comfortable and easy is not a disciple at all. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus did not give up on God's plan when it included a crowd of people mocking him. He did not give up on God's plan when it included and involved his exasperated body carrying up a massive beam up a hill to die. And you must ask yourself this morning, is following Jesus bringing difficulty in your life that you're trying to avoid? Is there something in your life right now that is harder than it would have been if you were not a Christian? Is your marriage harder because you're sticking it out because that's what Christians are called to do? Is it harder to live for Christ in your workplace because you're gonna identify with him? Is it harder to act like Jesus because you really, really, really wanna let them have it? But instead, sometimes to follow Jesus, instead of letting them have it, it means you let them give it to you. If that's the case for you this morning, rejoice that you are following a savior who suffered as a model for you and recognize that the Bible says that those who will suffer for Jesus are those who make up the kingdom. I think for some of us, 
we are unwilling to pay the financial cost that comes as being a follower of Jesus. Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew chapter number six, you cannot serve God in money. There's no gray area. You cannot serve God in money. If you love money more than you love God, you ain't following Jesus, my friend, in that moment. And there are times in our life where we have to make a decision. Do I love this money? Am I attached to this money? Or do I love God? And Jesus tells us how that is expressed. It's expressed through generosity, whether to Christ's church or to other people in need. And so many people, especially in this beloved country, love their money because they've built their lives on it. But ask yourself this question. Can you claim to follow the Savior who made the most generous sacrificial gift mankind has ever known and yourself be a closed-fisted giver? Can someone say, I love and follow Jesus with all my heart and not give like Christ gave? Jesus asks a lot. Following Jesus, let me say it again, is free. But it's not cheap. And Jesus in this passage is drawing a line in the sand. And he's saying this, that yes, I must die, but if you're gonna be a follower of mine, if you're gonna come with me into my kingdom, you need to cross that line too. You need to fit this definition or you are not a disciple of me. But friend, you might be hearing this and saying, if Christ's cross models our cost, then I don't want anything to do with following Jesus. And in some ways, I, I would recognize why you'd feel that way. I love, what I love about Jesus is he's not like a used car salesman. You know, there are no hidden fees with Jesus. He's pretty honest about what it takes to be his follower. He's not trying to bait and switch people. Hey, pray this prayer. And now, ha! You have to live your life for me. No, he's saying, listen, if you want to be my follower, you have to give your life for me, all or nothing. Pretty simple, pretty cut and dry, no bartering, no negotiating. That's the cost. But let me warn you, it's very short-sighted of you to think that that cost is so high that it's not worth it. Come on, Christians. I said, it's very short-sighted of somebody to think that the cost of Jesus is so high that it's just not worth it to follow him. Because Jesus in this passage makes it very clear that yes, there is a high cost associated with following Jesus. But following Jesus in the end is always a profitable decision. Every Every cost I named, as much as it would hurt you, in the end, Jesus says, you will have no doubts. It was worth it. The main truth Jesus is driving at in this passage is this, that Christ's cross models our cost, but his return promises our reward. He shows us the cross, the cost, and in verses 25 through 27, Jesus shows us the crown. 
He shows us that if we look at following Jesus, not on a short timeline, but on a long timeline, following Jesus, and I don't mind using these words because Jesus used them, following Jesus is always profitable. Jesus asks us some hard questions in verses 25 and 26. Let's hear them for ourselves this morning. Verse 25, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You know how I'd rephrase it? If you choose not to follow Jesus, can I ask you this question? What in your life is so valuable that it would be worth losing heaven to keep it. If loving sin and loving yourself is so valuable, are you really sure it's as valuable as your own soul? Is dying to yourself for the sake of Christ really that bad if it leads to true life later? Is Jesus not worth taking up a cross? Is gaining Jesus not worth losing your own soul? How could Jesus not be worth the price of your own soul? Friends, what in this life is possibly worth keeping in exchange for losing your soul? In the next life, nothing, nothing. Think about Jesus' statements on the positive side. You know what he's saying? He's saying, whatever you give up in this life, God will make up for it in the next life. Some of y'all need to hear this. Whatever you give up for Christ in this life, God will will make up for it. Are we believers of that this morning? Give me an amen. Throw a preacher a bone every once in a while. Whatever you give up for Christ in this life, in the next life, you will not regret it. There is not one regretful soul in heaven. Not one. Jesus says, you may not see the reward of it in this life because notice a very important word in verse 20. Seven, it says, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and what's the next word? I know you all have your Bibles. Then, 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 then he will reward. He won't reward right now. Friend, Don't be surprised if giving up something for Jesus doesn't pay off in your lifetime. Um, Excuse me, did Abraham get what God promised him in his lifetime? No, that dude, the only land he owned in Israel was a cave. Not quite what God had promised, right? Jesus says the timeline of reward is not in your three score and 10 years. No, no. The timeline of reward is when the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father. 
What is that? That is when Christ will return. As he came the first time, he will come a second time. He came as a servant the first time. The second time, he will come as a king. And he will come in full glory, not wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. He will return, and he will return as a judge who not only judges sin and casts punishment, but he will return as a judge that pays out dividends that you've invested in him. So my friends, if you feel yourself lacking because you follow Jesus, if you feel like you've given up too much, know that the certainty of Christ's return is the same certainty you can have that everything you give up for Christ's sake will be rewarded one day. We do not look for Jesus to pay us off in this lifetime because that's not faith, that's sight. We look for Christ to pay us off in the next life. And in the next life, there will not be one regretful soul in heaven. If God blesses you in this life, friend, it's just a bonus. It's just a bonus. His cross models our cost. And his return promises our reward. I wonder if there's some here, while my wife makes her way up to the platform, who would not this morning, because of Jesus' definition, would not identify as a follower of Christ. You would not say, I'm a Christian. Now, I'm being honest with you. Being a Christian does not make your life all easy. Nope. It's hard. You got to give up stuff. You got to serve a king. You're no longer in charge of your life. Jesus is. That's not easy. I'm not going to dupe you. I'm not a used car salesman. You can't follow Jesus if it's just pie in the sky, lovey-dovey feelings, but no willingness to to pay the cost. That's not following Christ. But I do want to ask those who aren't a follower of Jesus, is it possible that maybe you're willing to give up what you're hanging on to for the promise of eternal life? What are you hanging on to? Is it your self-governance? Your pride? Is that really worth missing heaven? Is it really worth it? If you're ready to follow Jesus, all it requires is to repent of your sins, your self-governance, and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Repent and believe. Christians, I want you to take a moment of reflection and prayer and ask yourself this question. Is there an area of my life that I need to deny? Is there something I love so much so that I hang on to it even when Jesus tells me to give it up? Your sin, your comfort, money, your time. I don't know what it would be, but I believe everyone in here is holding on to something small or big, Jesus has called you to give up. 
it would be a good time right now to do what Peter should have done and repent. Apologize. And receive his forgiveness. Because as we sang about, his forgiveness is not based on how good you are. No, it's based on how good he is. But pray for Christ's strength to deny yourself this week. You know what we should do? I don't have words on the screen, but 90% of you or more know this song. Let's stand. Shelby's playing, I have decided to follow Jesus. Let's just sing that first.